Nope. Sorry, I did it wrong again. Betsy. Yes. Hi. Long time no here. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we're just going to dive straight into this. Um, It's cool. Um, We've been doing these podcasts for the last, we started about eight weeks ago, talking about all sorts of bits and pieces, first-line metastatic disease, and we've really transferred them across to trying to talk about the the dynamic changes in healthcare going on in in Western Europe and around the world and the US now. Um, and um, we, Brian and I wanted to invite you along. Um, do you want to introduce yourself, Betsy? Sure. Um, I'm Betsy Plamack. I'm a GU medical oncologist at Fox Chase Cancer Center uh, here in Philadelphia in the Northeast US. Happy to be um, on. Well, thank you for joining us. And we'll be, we'll be about 15 minutes, I guess. Um, Brian, do you want to start with a with this a broad question? We, I mean, Betsy and I are obviously involved in 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 urothelial cancer, and all three of us are involved in renal cancer. But that's not sure. really what we want to talk about today. I think that the changing landscape um, over the last couple of weeks has been so rapid in the UK, and I get the impression from the newspapers the same in the US that events seem to be taking a um, um, a turn for that on their own, and and, and we t- are struggling to keep up. If, if that appears to be the case, is that a reasonable statement? Yeah, yes. I think your cases are ahead of ours. You know, um, nationwide, I think probably Philadelphia is ahead of Nashville, where I am in terms of incident cases. You know, our hotspots have been Seattle, New York, et cetera. So there's clearly sort of an evolving, um, you know, an evolving pandemic in terms of testing and number of affected cases, et cetera. And so, you know, a a topic that's come up relative to our specific niche area has been the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy in bladder cancer patients. And this discussion is really evolving by the day. And Tom, you and Silky Gillison had put out some guidelines that Betsy and others had commented on about using or not using. And there's been a little bit of a, you know, Twitter debate back and forth. And I think really what we want to talk about today is sort of the practical considerations um, in that specific subset, but maybe even more broadly in terms of how we're approaching these patients in specific, but maybe cancer patients in general. So, Tom, maybe you can start with um, so talking my about two cents. So what that guideline showed and maybe yeah, how you're so, thinking. The so that was more seen as advice rather than guidelines. And it was seen as um, a scaffolding um, around discussions that we were having in Europe at the time. Uh, the principle, the struggle, the challenge that we had then is very different from the challenge we have now. We then had a position where we were able to um, keep most of the services up and running and we were making difficult decisions about, you know, if we treat patients now, what are things going to look like in six or nine weeks' time? I think things have moved on where we are to we're not having that discussion about what things look like in three or six weeks' time. We're struggling to work out what things are going to look like next week. And what we're trying to do is really focus on cancer patients who need urgent treatment, who need life-saving or life-changing treatment. And these other issues, which we're currently debating, is, you know, can we keep the operating theatres working? Will we have ITU beds? Um, Is the um, day unit, the chemotherapy day unit, is that infection-free? You know, these are the questions, the challenges we're currently facing, rather than specific details about neoagent chemotherapy in setting A or setting B. Um, Betsy, I'm really interested to hear what you, what you think. So I agree. I mean, I think 
the conversation has changed from um, what we'd like to do to what we can do today, tomorrow, and then a week from now. And I think we do have a little glimpse into the future. We have Italy. We have New York City, where we are. Um, those places are ahead of us. And the challenges they're facing, I think um, we have to assume we'll be facing as well in the short term. So when thinking about whether to bring a patient in today or tomorrow for treatment, I think we have to think about the patient, their comorbidities. If they get COVID, would they survive it? The Whether your treatment is curative or what the benefit would be. And then realistically, what you can do today is one thing and what you can do in the future may be another. So the idea of sending someone straight to surgery where we practice is no longer really on the table. We're, we don't have a, such a thing as an OR schedule right now. Um, so you know, our region is working on an emergent basis. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. You must be doing some operations, certainly in some cancer related operations. So is cystectomy. We are, but we don't have like a schedule. Like normally someone for cystectomy would go on the schedule and it would be right. one, two or three weeks, right? Never have we been able to do a cystectomy tomorrow. Sure. Um, and that's, still the case now. In fact, now probably more than ever. And the, the issues around surgeries that we're facing, and again, our center has it better than a lot um, and worse than others, are use of PPE during surgery. We use a lot of personal mm-hmm. protective equipment during surgery. Is that the best use, right? So we're rationing that. Um, mm-hmm. Use of ventilators and hospital beds during surgery. So that's a resource utilization question. But also, you know, when we have a, a case of COVID that was unexpected, Oh, I think we lost her. <laughs> Betsy's lost us for a second, but she was uh, she was going really well there, um, Brian. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take up where she said is the the challenge. I think that she's saying, which is that it's all become so unpredictable. What I wanted to yeah. talk about really quickly was around workforce, because one of the challenges we currently face is that workers we're not testing or we're not routinely testing our entire workforce. And so we're wanting to in the near future. We haven't got an antibody test, so we don't mm-hmm. yet know who has been positive. And the challenge we currently have around workforce is at any time, maybe up to a third of the workforce is isolating at home, which is obviously the right advice because being in hospital and with immunosuppressed patient with potential infection would be really bad. But on the other hand, we're finding it very hard to predict who's going to be at work the next day. Yeah, really the same. You know, obviously the, the U.S. is sort of lagged behind in testing. And I think ideally we would we would know the the test status for everyone. We'd quarantine those who are positive, including healthcare workers, but then obviously allow others to come back to work and care for patients if they were negative. And so we're you know, this is evolving day by day in terms of who we can test, who we should test. What about if you have a household exposure versus a patient exposure? And so we have institutional guidelines, but but it's really evolving day by day. Welcome back, Betsy. But Betsy, you. welcome back. <laughs> we were talking about workforce, um, and uh, we were talking yeah. about how uh, people with how it's so difficult to predict to plan activity, not just because of the changing landscape, but also it's difficult to know who's going to be at work the next day. Right? Are you having similar challenges? So we are. I think um, some of the interesting best practices that have been rolled out are rotating workforce, so benching some of your staff at home mm-hmm. to do telehealth while others see your patients and then assuming that health um, healthcare folks will come down with the infection, rotating back in. 
I do think the issue of testing is getting much better. So even here, we are seeing in some settings testing that can come back within less than 24 hours, which really helps because, mm-hmm. of course, if we can prove someone's not infectious or infected, they can come back to work. So testing, I expect, and I'm optimistic about evolving and helping this problem. But planning ahead for workforce depletion, I think, is something we're all should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, what does next week look like where you are? And Betsy, what does next week look like? Where you are? So we're... I'll go first. We're starting to do sort of that workforce rotation and put people into groups. And so groups that group A is going to do inpatient this week and group B will do outpatient telehealth and group C is at home. Um, and then obviously we can rotate people into group C if they become exposed or need to be quarantined. And so we're in many more groups. So we're starting to think about workforce allocation. It's absolutely an all hands on deck situation in terms of taking care of patients outside your specialty and you know perhaps outside your comfort zone a little bit. Um, and so that's really a lot of active planning, you know, trying to get ahead of, you know, when our surge comes, which we anticipate in the next week or two. Betsy, what about Philadelphia? So I think I agree with that as well. And, and plans are evolving rapidly. Um, I also think it's important for us to assume we're infected and wear masks and be careful about not infecting each other. Um, mm-hmm. I think we tend to take an approach as healthcare providers that the PPE is to protect us. Um, but if we only have access to soft surgical masks and clinic and gloves, well, that's what we should be doing so that we don't, you know, create a, a ripple effect if we are, if slash when one of us does um, become positive for COVID. So I think these precautions and planning ahead are things we have to do um, rather than business as usual until we have to stop and then we're behind the eight ball. I want to go back to the patient treatment question that we were talking about at the top of the podcast. And so something that we're going to discuss on a call later today with some of my internal folks is, um, you know, we had a patient who, uh, I think one of our first patients in the hospital who, um, you know, ultimately you know, obviously had we had that test result when starting chemotherapy, that obviously would have changed our practice. And so I don't know if this has been instituted anywhere is anybody routinely testing people prior to the start of systemic therapy, either high-risk people, high-risk regimens, et cetera, you know, or not? I, I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I'm just putting it out there. I've not heard of anyone doing that, Brian, and the logistics that it currently stands associated with that are slightly complicated. Um, we're currently not treating that many patients mm-hmm. in reality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the the my fear is it doesn't really make any difference if you test positive today or tomorrow, because I reckon you've got a 20% chance of testing positive at some point over the next three weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I think you should enter into all treatments on the assumption that a patient could get infected. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Fair I think enough. if we had rapid testing that was widely available, um, right. we could make a bigger dent in this pandemic in many ways. Um, that's one of them. But until we have that, we're, we're stuck with guessing and assuming so, Betsy, when you see a you know T two patient in clinic, T two uh, urothelial cancer patient in clinic yesterday, what are you doing, and what are you telling that patient and their family? So last week, if I thought they were young, healthy, had a low risk of immunosuppression, and were motivated, I would recommend neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, again, I practice at an institution where we're really conserving resources away from surgery, and if we can delay it, it's of benefit to our whole program right now. Um, for others, I think today or tomorrow, I'm not sure I would 
start them if I could afford to wait completely until this passes. Right. But again, cystectomy tomorrow is not an option for me. Right. And cystectomy next week um, would be very challenging, I think, in most clinical settings in the United States and Europe right now. So would you just maybe, you know, maximally TUR that patient and kind of observe them and kind of say, well, let's see what next week and next month bring and then make a decision? Is that the approach? Um, So maximum TUR is an OR, right? So that's an an operating room procedure. You could certainly do a cystoscopy and take a look to assess. Um, But these are the kinds of hard things. I mean, there's no question we aren't able to do what we think is the best course of curative therapy for these patients today or next week. And how we think about it and talk about it is going to be, I think, probably one of the greatest challenges of my career um, and many of ours. So, Betsy, on that point, that's really important because I think the difficulty, the, 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 the habit that we've got used to, and particularly you in the U.S., is this plethora of data and unlimited options in healthcare. And we now, are, I'm facing a clinic tomorrow where I'm likely to tell five or six patients that normally you would get treatment, that, you're, that normally you would start a treatment this week, and I can't guarantee we're going to start this month. Right. Um, and I don't know. I have. I don't have a huge amount of experience in that conversation. No. And I don't know how the patients are going to react. Right. So there was a really nice online resource by Vital Talk, and they're a group that helps um, physicians have tough conversations with patients, and they do workshops. But they issued sort of uh, talking points for some of these hard things. And um, I tweeted it out. I think it's a really good resource. I think that's really what we're going to need to read up on going forward, how do we explain this in an empathetic way um, and, and convey to the patients that we're not being unfair and that um, it's the situation and the reality, not, not us or them. Yeah, it's ironic that oncologists who are used to having really hard conversations are struggling with having really yeah. hard conversations, you know? Yeah. Brian, you've got 10 seconds to wrap this up. So I think what we're seeing is that um, none of us really know what to do. It's, it's evolving day to day. And I think as Betsy alluded to, it's really a, a patient level, family level, you know, individual level decision. And I don't know that you can promise patients anything for next week or next month, but sort of account for their situation and, and you know, try to make the best decisions. Uh, and that's all we're trying to do in these difficult times. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with more. Absolutely. Thanks, Betsy. Betsy, thanks for joining us. Stay safe, everyone. You too. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.